Welcome to Leadership Recipes. My name is François Moscovici, and I'm a partner at leadership consultants White Water Group. I spend most of my week working with leaders, their teams and their boards, but I have another passion, food. I trained as a professional chef, and I have always been fascinated by all aspects of food, be it historical, scientific, artistic, or simply making it and eating it. Leaders tend to travel and experience all types of food. For some, it's an opportunity to explore. For others, it's a risk they'd rather avoid. Food often represents who we are. So I thought I'd ask them about their relationship to food, starting with their favorite recipe. From vegans to horse meat lovers, from I can't boil an egg to accomplished cooks, from Epicureans to those always in a hurry, I interview leaders from all walks of life about their favorite recipe, how it became so, and what it means to them in the context of their role. In part two of each episode, I discuss the recipe, what it should look and taste like, and give you tips either to make it quickly or to impress your guests at the weekend. The recipes themselves are in the episode notes. Happy listening and happy eating. Welcome to episode two of the Leadership Recipes podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life about their favorite food. As we are coming to the holiday season, I wanted to have a spiritual leader. And so it is my pleasure to welcome Jim Walters, who is the chaplain of the London School of Economics. He's a priest, professor, and interfaith practitioner. He's the author of a book called Loving Your Neighbor in an Age of Religious Conflict. Because he has many roles, I started by asking him what they were. Well, formally, it's the Reverend Canon Professor James Walters, but take your pick. Jim is great. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a very good intro. And when people referred to you, I mean, you know, in military terms, they would call you the padre of the school. What, what, what would be the equivalent at the LSE? So I do have different roles. That's part of the challenge. So I'm the chaplain. I've been the chaplain since 2010, but I'm director of the Faith Centre, which is probably the the way in which I fit most into the institutional structures at LSE. And then I'm now also a professor in practice in the Department of International Relations. So I wear different hats and I'm referred to as different things in different contexts, but I'm always just called Jim. Okay, Jim is good. And so for those of us who are not familiar with the LSE or with the various institutions in which you are active, what does a, you know, a day in the life of Jim or a week in the life of Jim look like? Well, it's a cliche, but no two days are the same as part of the reason why I've stayed there for 13 years. I'm not sure I really intended to. And there's different elements to the work that I do, but the mission of the center focuses on building relationships between people of different religious faiths. LSE students come from 150 different countries. So we're building their understanding of other religions and we're building their skill set to lead across difference, which is relevant in relation to religion, but relevant as we know in all kinds of different spheres in the world in which we live now. So the center's running programs that promote that across the school. I have to respond to different things that are going on in the world. Obviously, this term has been very dominated by the conflict in Gaza. And I do a lot of listening, a lot of facilitating dialogue. Then I have an academic role. I lead a research unit. And I also do all the things that you have to do when you run a center, like line management and fundraising and administration and all those things. So it's extremely varied. It's part of the reason I enjoy it so much. Hmm. And, and the international relations 
professorship? What does that focus on? So I look at the religious entanglement in global conflict. And I say religious entanglement because I think it's too simplistic to talk about religious conflicts. Normally, what's described as a religious conflict has different political, economic, social dimensions. But I'm interested in how religion is featuring in global conflict and in geopolitical discourse in the world today. I think it's more prominent than it was at the end of the 20th century, and we're seeking to understand that better. And the research unit is essentially looking at religious pluralism and how can we promote better relations between faiths and what 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 are the things that you need in place in a society, in a nation to do that. Very good. And so how did you get there? I mean, obviously... We all have our journeys, so tell me about your background. Well, I grew up just north of London in a town called Bishop Stortford, and I guess I had what would be described as quite a religious upbringing. Church was very important, very central. I also had an interest in Islam from an early age. I think I, you know, I was born just before the Iranian Revolution, and that loomed very large in, in the imagination around this other religion and how it interacted with the West. So... When I went to university, I read theology and religious studies, and I did mostly Christian theology, but a lot of Islamic studies. But I think I still had this idea that remains very strong for a lot of people, that religion's really about private life and isn't really relevant to public political discourse in the modern world. So I was interested in politics, and I started working for a member of parliament when I graduated from university in the year 2000. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And I think for a lot of people, that was a big turning point for me, a big shift in my thinking. And I think it really made me realize that religion was going to be much more entangled with political discourse and with conflict in the 21st century than we thought it was in the 20th. So interestingly, that pushed me back into the church and I went to seminary, trained for ordination. I was a parish priest for three years. And then this opportunity came up at the London School of Economics to establish this center, which, as I say, has a mission to build into religious understanding. We've got students coming from all over the world, many coming from contexts of escalating religion-related conflict. And I wanted to work with them while they're in London to think about how they can better lead across those divides in the countries that they're from. So we're working with LSE students, but then increasingly that's expanded to work all around the world. I've been in Cairo this year in Indonesia. And we're really trying to make a contribution to interfaith relations in the UK context, but but also internationally. It's true that we obviously have a very Euro or, or American or European centric view of the world. I was listening to another podcast this week about uh, how our health uh, perception is, is built and it's built on essentially 10% of the population. And uh, obviously, you observe the other 90% of the population and the prevalence of faith as a way of living. What can we learn from your observations traveling around? Well, the point you make is very salient. I think in the Western world, we have had a set of secular assumptions about the way in which religion is receding in importance. And that's very, very embedded in a lot of people's mindsets. We do a lot of work with diplomats who mostly are from a social setting in the Western world that has those assumptions. And then they're placed in countries where actually you just can't avoid religion in all areas of life and including in the political discourses and conflicts that they're seeking to address. So we need to remember that whatever our beliefs, 80% of the world remains religious, 80% plus. 
And for various reasons, including demographics, that isn't reducing, that appears to be increasing in many parts of the world. And even here in the West, immigration is unsettling a lot of our secular assumptions. So there's a lot to to think about and a lot of challenges to address. And and from a practical perspective, I mean, you mentioned Gaza at the very beginning, and it is, there is lots of pressure on the school and on other institutions to take sides. And, you know, you must be under tremendous pressure as well. What what is, how does that translate into, into your daily life at the moment? Well, I've been working on the Israel-Palestine conflict for over a decade. I've taken six groups of students, uh, predominantly Muslims, Christians, and Jews, some people of other faiths, some non-religious students. I've taken them to the region. We've explored together the religious dimensions of the conflict, and we've met interfaith leaders who are doing incredible work on the ground in the face of these escalating tensions. So I've been thinking about this, this conflict for a very long time. I've come to realize that taking sides of any kind is simplistic, that there is no solution to this situation that doesn't involve both sides. And I think the message I try to get across to students is that it's okay to feel very passionately about one side of the conflict. But if you think that the solution to the conflict is simply getting rid of the other side, then you're kidding yourself and you're not engaging with the the questions that really need to be grappled with. So we have those kinds of conversations within the university, but over the last few weeks, a lot of people have been deeply traumatized and it's been very, very unsettling for different communities in different ways. And in that context, you're not really ready for those sorts of dialogues. You've got to do a lot of listening and supporting and um, it's been a very challenging term. Absolutely. Thank you. Let's move on to food because that's what this is also. What the podcast is about. <laughs> that's what the podcast is about. And so I'll start with a fairly open question. What part does food play in your life when you grow up at work or social aspects? Well, I actually had quite an ambivalent relationship uh, with food in my life. So I didn't grow up with a sense of cooking being a real pleasure, something that you take delight in. However, I did spend quite a lot of my teens away from my family in France. And there I encountered a completely different culture that was really very interested in food and saw food at the center of family and and social life. And so I sort of saw a different way of engaging with food. And and that's sort of, I guess, the, the culinary journey that I've been on through the years. And I now enjoy cooking. I enjoy entertaining. I enjoy hospitality. And, you know, that's very bound up with religious practice as well. Religion's very integral to probably every religious tradition in some way. And um, it is interesting that obviously I was I was thinking, you know, what does Sunday mean? But maybe it's a bit early to discuss Sunday or Sunday roasts. But, you know, Sunday is a work day for obviously for a priest. Um, <laughs> and you probably spend the Saturday thinking about the Sunday or at least some of it. And so you tend not to work to the same calendar. How does it feel like in practice? Well, as I say, I'm not a parish priest as my as my kind of day job, as it were. But I'm I've been attached to parishes all through the time that I've I've been at LSE. So I'm normally doing something in church on a Sunday. And of course, the interesting thing about you know what we do in church on a Sunday morning is that you in that role you're presiding over a meal. You're remembering the the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before he died, and so that links very much into what normally happens on the rest of Sunday, which is sort of moving into uh, some kind of meal, some kind of celebration with friends or family. Absolutely. And, and if you were in France, you, you must have noticed the families then going to the 
patisserie and getting their cakes carefully wrapped and then carrying it home for the yes for the Sunday lunch. I think you you gave me an entry point here in terms of celebrating last meal. How does food integrate with your leadership style and your work? Obviously, at the center, do you use food as a way to get people together? Absolutely, we do. And food's usually important in interfaith engagement. I would say it's been especially important this term, actually. We had Interfaith Week a couple of weeks ago, and I was really thinking, you know, this is a time of a real strain on interfaith relations. What are we going to be able to do here? And it was very interesting that the ideas that came from the students were predominantly food-related. So the Jewish Society had a challah-making workshop, and they made this wonderful bread that was then used as part of the interfaith soup kitchen that we ran that week for the homeless um, uh, just outside the university. And then there were lots of gatherings around food of different kinds. So I think food is an incredibly important tool in bringing people together in showing hospitality and in expressing shared religious sentiments together, like in, in feeding the homeless. So yeah, it's absolutely essential. Absolutely. And you know, so what happens in a, in a small group then can happen to a larger group and food is, is, is often at the center, which takes me to your favorite recipe. So which one would you like to talk about? Right. Well, as I said, my, my mother struggled with cooking to some degree, but she was always, I think, confident on a Sunday. Um, we, most Sundays we would have uh, a roast chicken and she'd accompany that with vegetables that she'd usually grown in the garden. And so she really did take delight in that. And it was the way in which she felt, I think, most happy to be to be feeding her family. And so Sundays always in my mind are associated with the smell of slowly roasting chicken emanating from the kitchen. And it's something that remains very comforting and and reassuring to me. So if I've had a stressful week or um, I'm having some people over and I'm not quite sure what I want to prepare, I just stick a chicken in the oven and uh, I know it's going to be good. Excellent. I mean, I think that a lot of us can relate to the smell of a roast when we were children of some sort. And, and chicken is is obviously quite quite universal. So you make it yourself now. Do you have a garden where you can pick vegetables as well? Alas, that I don't have. Well, I have a few. I have a few tubs, but I'm not to the point of growing vegetables, sadly. And what's the secret of making a good chicken? If you if you make your own, <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to finding out in the second part of this podcast. But honestly, I just smother it in lemon juice and oil, bit of seasoning, stick it in the oven, make sure it's not overcooked and 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 dry. Usually, use the the juices to make some kind of sauce, perhaps with a bit of red wine, bit of red currant jelly, something like that. And it seems to I seem to have got into the 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 habit of doing that so it works we're, we're recording this in the morning but it's making me hungry already yeah. so there you go <laughs> so you give me your your and and yes in part two we will debate chicken and 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 i i think that um there is a, a a debate between fast versus slow so are you a slow roaster or a fast roaster it'd be a probably quite slow yes okay so we would examine both schools of thought in the uh, in the second part. Great. Watch this space. So, do you have, as we were talking about last meal, do you also have a, a perspective on wine or drink? I enjoy. I certainly enjoy wine. I'm not the greatest wine connoisseur, but in my book, you can't beat perfectly chilled glass of Chablis at the end of a stressful day. That's my. <laughs> that's that's heaven that's on earth a, for me. That's kick my shoes off. Drink. Okay. Very good. There is uh, uh, in this uh, in this uh, um, podcast, I, I go through uh, what, what I call the Proust questionnaire. So Proust, along with Victoria, because after all, Marcel Proust was a Victorian 
you know, of some sort. You know, these sort of idea of quick fire confessions, uh, where people say <laughs> people say who they are uh, in response to quick questions. So, have, uh, and, and he was quite a foodie. He, you know, if you've read any of of Proust, you know, oh yeah, the, you can the, tell the Madeleine, the Madeleine story. Is, is, is quite high on the list. So yes. I, I think that's because it's only on page 37 and many people don't go much beyond that. I couldn't, given I couldn't the volume possibly of the, admit. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So in your role, you will, you will probably have a different perspective on what I'm going to ask you from what uh, your, your standard business person answers. So it would be very interesting. Fire away. So let me start with your favorite virtue in general. And if you say peer as your colleagues at the school, Clarity of purpose, understanding what we're there for, what a university's for, striving for that. Excellent. Favorite quality in a team member, if you have people working for you? I do. Loyalty. Okay. And, and how does that translate? I think you get the best out of people when they know that you've got their back. So I make sure that team members know that I will be loyal to them and also that if things go wrong, I'll take the rap because I'm the leader and that's the role that leaders have. But to give that to someone, you really need to know that they're going to show loyalty to you in return. And I think that's how teams function well. Mm. The most important future trend that affects your business, as business is an interesting word here. Yeah, well, my business is peacemaking, I suppose, and building relationships between different religious groups. And there's a number of things that are causing that to go awry at the moment. But I think the one that troubles me most is the influence of communication technology on interfaith relations and on rising sectarian expressions of faith. So social media, artificial intelligence, how they are changing the ways in which people communicate within and across religious communities. This, this, is, this troubles me. And, and probably the uh, pressure it puts on being able to listen and to entertain opinions different from your own. And to empathize. Yeah. Exactly. The most important future trend that affects the world in general. Well, of course, I immediately think about the climate crisis. Um, we're doing a bit of work on that. But, under, I mean, related to that, what, what I think troubles me most is the lack of shared basis for collective action that we seem to have in the world today to respond to crises like climate change. And it's true that if you look at the map and see which is the first big country to be, that will be affected by rising waters, I think it's Bangladesh. So that has 200 million people. Yeah. This will be a major source of, of global conflict. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're already seeing how religious Fault lines can be exacerbated by resource scarcity, conflict over water, and this is a big issue that we're trying to engage with. Back to food now. Uh, your last great restaurant meal? It was French. Okay, what did you eat? I had chicken. There you go. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> what was your last great home dish? I was invited to a wonderful Thanksgiving meal uh, last week. Okay, uh, so, so that more, was turkey. More bird, uh, more bird, yeah, absolutely. More bird. Yep. more bird. But it's all about uh, the sides with the Thanksgiving meal. Wonderful sides, lots of different vegetables. True. Which are your favorite? So they served this uh, dish that I'd never had before, which was a kind of broccoli casserole that included Campbell's mushroom soup, and it was wickedly delicious. Mm, never thought about that. That yeah, I can see how they works. So the soup, the soup was was more like a sauce. Yeah, it was like a, so. The whole thing was kind of like a gratin. It had cheese on top. Okay, so yeah, because scamble soup you have to dilute by by a hundred percent. You need to put its its extra tin of water. So if you don't 
then you have a source. This is probably the way they, they made it, which is a great idea. Would you describe yourself as a cook or as a passenger? Well, I can cook, but I'm always happy to play sous chef to someone who's more able. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> probably being overly modest. Uh, what's your favorite ingredient? Raspberries. I think it's a delicious flavor. Say for global warming, we can get them pretty much any time. What's your most hated ingredient? I don't hate them, but I don't like olives, and I feel ashamed of that. I feel I ought to like olives. I just don't. Yeah, there's something very biblical about olives, but it's okay. You're allowed not to like them. Well, there is. <laughs> I know, exactly. I mean, I use olive oil uh -huh. all the time, uh, you know, both in the kitchen and liturgically, but um, olives themselves, I don't know. Just don't, don't go for them. Not your thing. Okay. Sweet or savory? Savory. In which world cuisine country would you like to live? Well, I think you know the answer I'm going to give to this. It's France. Nothing wrong with that. If you were a chef, who would that be? I'm not very like them, but my favorite TV chefs were the two fat ladies who, who, who were on a few years ago. I just love their, their kind of eccentricity and delight in food. And one of them, at least, was, was quite devout. I remember an episode where they cooked in the choir of Westminster Cathedral. If you were a superhero... Which one would that be? I don't think clergy should think about being superheroes. There's enough messiah syndromes around. <laughs> Any thoughts on the next few weeks coming? It's the time of year where the nights are drawing in and it's getting colder. And so in all of our traditions, hospitality and bringing people together around food is increasingly important, but usually to celebrate festivals of light. And uh, in Advent, we'll be lighting the Advent candles. Hanukkah is coming up where we'll be lighting candles on the, the menorah. And I suppose that symbol of, of light is a, is a very essential human one. It's, it relates uh, very easily to, to people's emotions and, and psychology. And I suppose thinking about how we can be the light is, uh, is, is what all of these traditions are trying to ask of us um, in what is quite dark times for, for, for global conflict and, and, and other challenges uh, around the world. Thank you very much for your wise words. And obviously, light of hope is what we all hope for. Always. Jim, thank you very That's much right. for your time. Look out for part two and uh, chicken stories. I will. I'm looking forward to learning. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you, Francois. I'm Valentine, and in part two of each episode, I'll be joining Francois, my dad, biggest culinary inspiration, and the person with whom I agree and disagree with most in the kitchen. And we'll discuss the recipe itself, where it comes from, what it should look like and taste like. We'll give you some shortcuts to help you make it faster, and some top tips to take the recipe up a notch and impress your guests. Welcome to part two, where we look at Jim's favorite recipe, what it is, where it comes from, and more importantly, how to cook it with minimum stress and maximum flavor. Again, it's my pleasure to introduce Valentine, for whom this podcast is very timely. It is indeed. I have a guest coming over in two days and I've been stressing about the menu, but I think that something along the lines of Jim's recipe is right up my alley. Very good. So let's have another look. First, a bit of context. There are a few dishes that evoke family gatherings more than roast chicken. For every gym and his mama that regarding vegetables, many of us can conjure a similar ritual. For me, the earliest one was my uncle being in charge of the charcoal barbecue at family gatherings and setting up a spit with an electric motor and those old-style square batteries. Then uh, I was sometimes allowed to guard the bird as it roasted and uh, allowed to baste it with mujdei. Mujdei is a blend of salted water and crushed garlic, a Romanian recipe. You had to be there, but it's quite tasty. Well, actually... 
I don't think that we made that much roast chicken growing up. Having said that, I do remember being slightly bewildered and fascinated by uh, the turkey baster that was in the in the cupboard in the kitchen. I always wondered what it was for. Yes, an instrument of torture which has been used many times. Exactly. So roasting. Roasting is full of mystery. Uh, famous French food writer Abrias Savarin said, one becomes a cook, but one is born a roaster. Roasting is hard because it's about reconciling impossible objectives, balancing the dullness of white and dark meat while keeping the bird from drying and creating a crispy skin. Well, actually, so in Italy, which is where I live, there are, there's a demonstration of just how complicated the art of roasting can be because there are roasters, there are shops which are called rosticerie, where you you know, you go to get your roasted goods. It might be a whole chicken or a piece of a piece of meat, vegetables, but they're the the experts in, in roasting. They're not quite butchers, not quite caterers. They're somewhere in the middle. Yep, and good roasters seem to defy both common sense and physics. Uh, they resolve this impossible equation. <laughs> what would that be, this impossible equation? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask. White meat is lean, and it's perfect at 62 to 65 degrees Celsius. As soon as it achieves that temperature, it's ready and it can be served, and any higher, and it dries up. Uh, whereas dark meat needs 72 to 75 degrees, and also that temperature needs to be sustained for some time in order for the collagen to degrade and make the meat more tender. And finally, crispy skin can easily be achieved if you baste it with fat during cooking, but the bird needs, needs a period of rest you know, to become more tender and to relax. And unless one wants to eat cold, you will typically tent it with foil. That creates steam and that softens the skin. So how can you get a crispy skin? Right. So at this point, if I may, it seems like a bit too much work. It kind of, you know, beckons the question, is it worth it? What can I do to make this a bit more accessible? Because, you know, I don't know, uh, a parent of 15 children in in the 1920s, roasting a chicken probably wasn't thinking of all of these physical, precise elements. So what approach can we think of? Um, I think it's a very valid question. Uh, many recipes have been designed. Uh, and, and you can make it as simple or as complicated as you want. So in the show notes, you will find the you know, Jamie Oliver recipe, which is uh, a very solid box standard recipe and that works but you know for this this podcast we're trying we're trying a bit harder and we want to give you uh um, some choices we won't go all the way to the good people the good people at modernist cuisine have designed which is uh, injecting the chicken with brine overnight and, and so on we're going to keep it simple but there are two approaches there is uh, uh slow and low versus fast and high and these are the two recipes that we would like to discuss today okay so, so what are we going to start well which one are we going to start with low and slow or fast and high low and slow low and slow so to start my research i spoke to uh my friend chloe whom you know well and mm-hmm. who's an instinctive instinctive roaster she keeps producing the perfect bird no matter what size or what oven type and like james she's a sort of low and slow fan so here is her recipe. She starts by brushing the uh, the bird with olive oil. Perhaps she puts a bit of garlic inside, but no salt. That's to ensure that the white meat remains moist. But we'll talk about this a bit later. She uh, drops the bird in a in a roasting dish in a preheated oven that typically one eighty to two hundred fan on, and she puts the bird outside, upside down and tents it with foil. And the bird then cooks for about thirty minutes and. Uh, After 30 minutes, you flip it, you baste it with whatever juice it has produced, and then 
You cook it for another 30 minutes, again, tented with foil. But you lower your oven slightly to, say, about 160, again, with fan. After at least one hour, this is her, her twist, uh, she will add some quartered onions uh, and some half tomatoes. And again, put it back in the oven and tent it. So the, the tomatoes, if I may, you know, quite unusual in a, in, a, in a roast chicken recipe. Is there any explanation for that? Yeah, I think that the onions provide some taste, but the tomatoes provide some liquid. And that gives, again, if you, if you think that the, 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 the liquid will evaporate with the heat, but will be contained by the foil, you will create a sort of uh, steam environment, which will be good for the kitchen, the chicken, both, both to cook and to remain tender. And do you add the onions and the tomatoes around, underneath, inside? Around. Around. Okay. Okay. And you, and you baste regularly, basting, 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 uh, for a total of two to two and a half hours. So that's quite a long. That's quite a long roast. You would typically do that in the morning for lunch or in the afternoon for dinner while you do other things in, in the kitchen. And her test is that when, once the legs pull out easily and there is no pink left, I know when you when you when you when you pull the legs out, uh, it's ready. Now. I've cooked this, and, and you may find that because of the foil, the bird, the bird isn't cooked efficiently. So in that case, simply remove the foil and give it a few minutes until the uh, the skin colors and becomes crispy. Okay, so um, quick question. Why should you put the bird upside down at the beginning? So the, the juices contained in the chicken uh, will actually percolate into, into the breast meat and will keep it juicy. And also... It will um, avoid the the breast meat to be exposed to the intense heat of the oven without any protection. That's I think that's the intention anyway. One thing which I mean I've I've, I've cooked Chloe's um, recipe. I've, I've 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 tasted it, and I would say that I would probably salt it towards the end so that the salt can penetrate into the uh, into the meat, not just on the plate. It's always nicer to salt while it's cooking than on the plate. But I know why she doesn't salt is for the need of the water not to drain from the, the, the breast meat. So that's uh, that's Chloe's recipe. The juices are, are different. They're not uh, they're not classic chicken juices because of the onion and tomato, but they're quite yummy. And if you reduce them, you get a very tasty, tasty side sauce. Now, sometimes you don't want, you don't have the time for, for slow and low or low and slow. Um, you won't you won't fast and high either because you're in a professional kitchen uh, or because you're cooking when you're returning from a day of work and you don't have three hours ahead of you. So here is the one hour version. You start with a fairly slug pan and again you 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 oil your you oil your chicken. Again you put an, an oven at 180 degrees Celsius with a fan on. So so far so similar. So far so similar, but you season your bird well. You know, that could be herbs, lemon, etc. but it's mainly salt and pepper inside and outside. And then you start with the chicken on the side. So the leg is at the bottom of the pan. And you, you do that, you, you, you put that in the oven for 15 minutes. You then flip your bird on the other leg and you give it another 15 minutes. I've never heard of cooking the, the chicken on its leg. It's quite unusual. What's the, what's the reasoning behind that? There are two reasons. One is your, your pan gets hot in the oven, so you have direct contact of, the, of the, the leg meat against the pan, and that gives you better conductivity than just the air of the oven. And also it has all the weight of the chicken pressing down on it. This way you get the legs to cook faster relative to the breasts. And because you're trying to get them ready at the same time, that is the easiest method and the most effective method to, to achieve that. 
So once you've downloaded both sides, so you're at 15 plus 15 is 30 minutes, you flip your bird upside down, well, upside down on its back with the breast up, and you give it this time 20 minutes, but you baste every five minutes. At this point, you may want to tip a bit of juice from the carcass into the pan for the basting, and also like to add a bit of butter for taste. Do you add the butter to the juices or to the breast directly? doesn't matter. To the juices, the sweet melt, it, it melts immediately and you can start basting straight away. The right. butter, of course, at 180 degrees will tend to burn, but if it's mixed with the juice and the, the water from the chicken, then it doesn't really and used for basting. It gives, it, it gives it a nice taste. Once the 20 minutes have elapsed, you take the bird out and you put it on a, on a, on a carving board or a tray, aware that lots of juices will spill out, so you need something which will retain the juices, and you make it relax for 10 minutes, and you cover it with foil, and this is your hour. This is your 20 you minutes soft plus jazz. Hmm? Sorry? You play, you play some soft jazz to make it relax. Exactly, exactly. If, and if, uh, if the, uh, the drumstick taps to the music, then it's not ready. So what you then do is you carve off the legs and you put them back in your still hot oven. And this will allow them to sort of finish cooking it to still a little bit on the pink side. You collect the juices from the carcass and from cutting off the legs, but you, you leave the breasts on the carcass. This is where they, they can stay warm. And then you use those juices to make your sauce. And there'll be, I'll also a bit more about that in a minute. When you're done, you carve off the breasts and assemble with the legs on your serving dish and serve. And uh, Bob's your uncle. So just thinking of the tools that you need to, to cook a roast chicken, since the, the methods differ quite, quite a lot. What about a thermometer? Is that going to come in, in handy or can you do without? So the classic tip for roast chicken is you, you puncture the meat near the thigh bone, and if the juice comes out clear, i.e. no blood, then it's ready. What I find with this method is that on the fast version, it will tend to have you overcook the, uh, the white meat. So I prefer to use a thermometer. And my thermometer, when it says that the breast meat has reached uh, 65 degrees, and the thigh meat has reached 72 degrees, then I know that I'm ready. You know, and then there is a combination around that. But uh, a thermometer is always a good thing to have at hand. So, on to our famous tips. Today, what I've done is that I've divided between uh, pre-cooking uh, routines, because I think they're quite important. And then I want to say a little bit about the sauces. So, first things first, bring the bird to room temperature. You know, give it at least 30 minutes because it's a large it's a large piece of meat and that can have a huge impact to the doneness of your of your chicken my 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 quick method will work with a chicken which is already at room temperature so you could say that it's not really an hour because you need a bit of some at room temperature so if there's someone at home phone ahead and ask them to take the uh, the meat out of the fridge all right tip number one what's tip number two ensure that your chicken is dry to maximize the chances of a crispy skin um as we know, there is no point. There is no point uh, rinsing a chicken. But what you want to do is um, is to tap it dry with uh, paper towels, uh, both inside and outside, and then you want to smear it with a bit of oil. Tip number three: remove the wishbone. That is true for any bird. It makes carving much easier. Okay, I'm not an expert at uh, chicken anatomy, but uh, I did quite like the etymology of the word wishbone. Wishbone is quite an obvious 
etymology, you know, because we all know the, the game by which you try and separate the wishbone in two by pulling it with someone else. It's something I always did with my brother. Good fun. It actually, prior to the 17th century, sorry, 18th century, was um, called a merry thought. So similar similar concept, but different words. Although the technical term is furcular. Furcular from the Latin for a small fork, which makes sense when you look at the shape of it, which is, you know, it's the equivalent of a, of a collarbone, isn't it? It is. Um, it's the chicken's collarbone or a clavicle. And the best way to visualize it is um, if you if you put the chicken, uh, if you stand the chicken like, like a little person on its legs, the wings uh, essentially are the arms, and at the top uh, with the breast facing you, if you put your finger in the cavity, you will you will you will feel a small bone, and uh, uh, and these are the two collarbones which then unite and connect with the sternum. So that's what you want to remove. So put the chicken back on its back. Use a small paring knife, the tip of a small paring knife, and carefully remove the, the bone from the meat and then pull on it. Uh, if you're lucky, it comes in one piece. If you're not so lucky, it comes in two pieces. But uh, you should always remove it. So obviously, if you have those memories of you and your brother sharing a wishbone, it means that I hadn't done my job properly. Well, yeah, I was about to say, I mean, you know, maybe the, the recipe wasn't as elaborate as, as you now uh, are able to do, but it would have been a pity not to have had that, that merry thought to, uh, <laughs> to fight over. With my brother. There you go. So next tip is trussing. Now, most chicken combos already trust, but check that it's well done. What you want is a compact rugby ball where the lower legs are tightly held together and therefore they protect the thinner part of the breast from excessive heat. If you find that your chicken is not trussed properly, use some, use some string and redo it. You know, they, the chicken typically come from a, with an elastic, but you may use some cooking string and then redo it yourself. It's quite straightforward. Uh, and final tip, uh, salting. That's a whole chapter, but in quick terms, I would say salt immediately for a quick roast and salt at the end for a slow one. So arguably the best part of a roast chicken is the sauce or the gravy. Maybe that's just my personal opinion, but... Moving on to the jus or the sauce, what can you tell us about that? I would say you need to know what you want to do before you do it. That's same. That seems obvious, but uh, I've seen many people say, "Okay, what do I do now? Do I do I you know do I add flour? Do I add water? What what's what's the approach?" And right, so you I, need oh, to plan ahead before you actually get into cooking the chicken. Yeah, there are three avenues. Yeah. So avenue. Number one is you want simply a slightly reduced jus, which is the, the taste of the roasted chicken, untainted. So what you do is you remove some of the fat because there'll be quite a bit of fat. You deglaze your pan with a bit of water. Now, I always put my, my always boil my water in a kettle so that uh, that is faster acting in, in the pan. You also pour back all the liquid from the slicing because that has taste. And uh, you reduce that slightly. You concentrate the taste. And you should have enough balance there for jus which is tasty and nice and i was saying french sapide which is pleasing has umami but you also have enough juice to to coat your meat you would not need to get tons of it but it will be very tasty a more advanced method in the same vein is you use some of that chicken fat that you have uh, removed and you fry a little bit of chopped carrot and chopped onion and then you wet with all the other watery components and you reduce it. It will retain a light texture but it will give you, it will give you a more pronounced and sweeter flavor. But do you keep 
the vegetables or do you drain the vegetables? No, you pass them, you pass them, you sieve them, you just, you just retain the juice. Why does this approach require you knowing what to do before you cook your meat? Because it's, it's, it's one of these slightly intense moments, you know, your, your chicken is ready. If you don't serve it, it's going to get cold. So you need to work fast to finish your year and then bring everything to the table quickly. Right. So it's, it's about psychological preparation for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Now, if you're more interested in something perhaps syrupy, then Jim's method of deglazing with red wine and adding a bit of, of currant jelly will give you that sweet taste with a good mouth coating. Now, I would also use some herbs and some black pepper to ensure that you don't feel you're just eating liquid jam with wine. But this combination of reduced wine and, and, and chicken flavor works really well. Okay, and what about the grand classic, the gravy? The gravy, so the gravy is um, is something which you don't find in every culture, uh, whereas the jus is pretty much universal. But what you want is, I mean, what, what gravy is, is essentially a slightly diluted chicken liquid, which then gets thickened. And as a result, you get a lot more sauce to serve on the bird. So you can really have a, a, a moist uh, breast if it's slightly overcooked. The principle is very simple. It's liquid plus a thickening agent. So probably you want to use extra chicken stock because your cooking is unlikely to produce enough. Now, you can always use water, but uh, chicken stock is what's going to give it taste. And then use a thickening agent. Now, this could be flour or potato starch or arrowroot or tapioca, you name it. Uh, but it just needs to be a thickening agent. You can also cheat and make your gravy in advance and simply balance its flavor with some of the fat from the just roasted chicken. That's quite a tasty combination. And uh, where, where do you stand on granules? <laughs> granules should be banned, but uh, I understand. I that. think they're delicious. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, we're eating them straight from the tin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's sort of savory umami. I think that granules. What, what granules are is essentially the combination. They're a combination of chickens of dried chicken, chicken stock, like a cube, plus uh, starch. And so, with one granule, you do both. You both you get both the taste and the thickening, and you just add water. So from a theoretical standpoint, they are, uh, they are correct. From a taste standpoint, it's a very distinctive taste, which says, which screams, I bought this off the shelf. <laughs> well, I've got, um, so the Italian guests that are coming over in a few days have expressed um, doubts about gravy. So one of my aims is to convince them that it's a, it's a delicious, delicious uh, ingredient. So hopefully I'll be able to, to do that. <laughs> okay, so just to finish off these tips, I thought that I would do a rapid fire round by asking you, you don't need to justify any of, any of these answers. I just want to know, what's your preference? You ready? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, in the pan, vegetables or no vegetables? I'm more partial to roast potatoes on the side, but vegetables will flavor the chicken and they will also be flavored by the chicken. So it's a win-win. Next Olive oil or butter? Well, I'll start by saying preferably not olive oil. Uh, I know that many recipes include olive oil because it's good for you, but sometimes it's uh, more appropriate to use a neutral oil, which is what I would choose. And it's better to use oil to obtain a crispy skin because it has no water, so it doesn't soften the skin, but you can't beat the taste of, of butter. So as I've indicated my, in my previous recipe, uh, I do put some butter. Okay. Um... Can you list off the herbs that you would add to your roast chicken? Yes, so go in one direction with herbs. So if you want to go tarragon, just just use tarragon only. If you want to use finzer, you know the classic French mix of four herbs, then you use that. 
If you want to use lemon, use lemon. If you want to use preserved lemon, use preserved lemon. But don't do, say, preserved lemon and tarragon. That doesn't work. Okay, so keep it simple. Okay, and last but not least, what are your thoughts on tenderizing before? So yogurt or some kind of vinegar? Acid works. Acid works. So, you know, kefir with lemon or whatever absolutely works in tenderizing meat. And, you know, Central Asian kebabs are, are to die for. Um, but that works best with chicken that's already broken down into, into components. You know, your classic eight-part chicken. Because uh, if you had to use yogurt to tenderize a whole chicken, you would need about three liters, and that would be a bit wasteful. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to be exposed to questioning. <laughs> so, as usual, we'd love to have your comments and questions on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. And so, again, bon appétit and Valentine, good luck with your guests at the weekend and your roast chicken. Thank you very much. Thank you for the tips. Well, I hope that they're useful. We will report back on the next podcast, which will be next year. This is now coming out in mid-December. So have a great holiday. Happy New Year to all of you and see you in 2024.